Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. So good to see you. So glad that you're here. Hope you had a great week and weekend. Let me one more time welcome all our first-time guests in the room and online VIPs. So glad you're here. So glad you're here. And again, one more time, as we already heard from Pastor Isad, I want to welcome the online family, all you watching from wherever you are. Glad you're tuned in. If we haven't met, my name is Chris. I have the privilege of serving as senior pastor of BT Church and the honor of taking us into God's Word today. So if you have a copy of God's Word, physical or digital, why don't you meet me in Nehemiah chapter 5. Nehemiah chapter 5 is where we will be. Uh, Here at BT, we believe in a culture of celebration. We also believe that celebration is a discipline. And so like any discipline, if you don't do it, you get bad at it, right? And so we don't want to get bad at celebrating what God is doing. And so we celebrate that this year... 219 people have said yes to Jesus, placing their faith in him as their personal Lord and Savior. That's where you clap. Of that, we just uh, had our kiddos, third through fifth grade, come back from kids camp. They were there Wednesday to Saturday. We had one of those kids place their faith in Jesus, so we celebrate uh, at a young age, uh, giving their life to Christ. And then a really cool story, so last Sunday... We had a gentleman named Chris, I'll never forget his name, and uh, he was invited to BT, and he came for the very first time. And so last Sunday he came, and in the 9 a.m. service last week, he gave his life to Christ, right? That's cool. Came back today and got baptized at 9 a.m., brought his fiance today, and she got saved at 9 a.m. So we celebrate those types of decisions. We also celebrate that 117 people have been obedient uh, in believer's baptism, going public with their faith. We had one last service, so we celebrate those 117. Let's give it up uh, for those and for the Lord's moving. And we just never want to get tired of celebrating uh, what God is doing here at our church. And so uh, here in Nehemiah 5, we're in a series titled Rise Up, and we're walking through the book of Nehemiah. And so if you've missed uh, some of the past sermons, by the way, you can catch them online. Best way to do that, go to YouTube, search BT Church, and uh, catch them there. But you also, while you're there, subscribe to our YouTube channel, because then you can get alerted whenever we have new content. It's not just our sermons, but our community group material and uh, other videos that we post. And so you can find it on YouTube or on our app or website as well. But here's the real quick overview in case you've missed. Uh, What what happened is the nation of Israel was a kingdom, right? And that kingdom split. And now you have two kingdoms, a northern kingdom called Israel, that's easy to remember, southern kingdom called Judah. Both of those kingdoms would end up being conquered, though. They they would lose their way, uh, right, as God's chosen people. They would lose their way, turn from God, worship false gods, and they would be conquered. Uh, A nation called Babylon would come in, and they would conquer, and then Persia would come in. And so Nehemiah is taking place during the Persian rule of the people of Judah. Nehemiah worked in the king's court. So uh, we, we learned that in the first couple chapters. He worked in the king's court. And so, you know, he's pretty well to do, so to speak. And, and what happens is, is he gets word that his hometown, Jerusalem, is in ruins. That, that you know, in all the, uh, the, the conquering that had taken place, it had been destroyed and had never been rebuilt. And the news that he receives grieves him. And the first thing he does when he receives distressing news is he prays. Take note, that's for someone today. That's why God brought you here. Your first response when you get distressing news should not be social media, uh, cable news, even your best friend or spouse. It needs to be your savior, right? Those other outlets only serve, hopefully, as an echo if you're seeking the Lord. So he goes to the Lord in prayer, and then he gets challenged. Hey, do something about it, right? So then in Nehemiah chapter 2, he's 
uh, in front of the king, and he's kind of down because his you know, city's in ruins, and the king says, you know, why, why the long face? And by the way, if you're like checking it out, that's not the exact verbiage used, but anyways. And, and so, you know, why the long face? And he says, my, my hometown is in ruins, the walls are destroyed. And then in a great leap of faith, because it could have resulted in his execution, he says, can I go? And in the amazing movement of God, Nehemiah is given permission to go rebuild the walls. He's given provision, right? Because he tells the king, hey, I'm going to need some papers to prove that I'm actually on the king's business, and I'm going to need some money to buy supplies. And so the king gives him permission and provision. Nehemiah thinks he's set, but then the king gives him something he didn't even ask for, which was protection. The king sends guards and officials with Nehemiah. The point of that is that when we're doing God's business, God's going to provide. Amen? And so he goes to Jerusalem, and he does the first thing that we have to do when things are falling apart. He faces the ruins, right? Listen to me. Some of you today, your marriage is struggling, and the reason why it's not getting better is you and your spouse are pretending like it's a-okay. You put on the front in front of the kids, in front of friends that come over for dinner, but it is falling apart, and you've got to face the facts that it's that it's falling apart so you can trust God to rebuild it, right? If you never actually get into the counseling, you know, tell your, you know, trusted Christian brothers and sisters, it's not going to get better. You got prodigals. Some of you parents got prodigals out there and we, we, we need to face the ruins, N- not accept it, right? Not say that's just the way it's going to be, but face the ruins and expect God to do something. Financially, some of us are going through struggles. We've got to face the reality of those ruins, and move forward. And then last week we talked about fighting the right fight. And here's the reality. We, we can have two extremes. Some of us in here, we fight all the fights. Uh, that's not the best response. And some of us, we fight none of the fights. That's not the best. How do we fight the right ones, right? How do we know which ones to fight? And then today, I want to talk about fighting for peace. Fighting for peace, particularly in divided times, because for Nehemiah, he was living in divided times. Doesn't sound anything like today, does it, right? There's no division in our culture today. Come on. Hey, you guys know how this works. You laugh, you clap, I preach shorter. You sit there and don't respond. We'll be here till 4 p.m., all right? So it's up to you, all right? It's up to you. So anyways, fighting for peace in divided times, how appropriate for the time that we live in. And the reason why it's important is when we look at Jesus' longest recorded teaching in Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, one of the things we see him say at the very beginning, he, he gives these things called the Beatitudes, right? And they're blessed as this, these people because this is going to be the result. And they're these statements. And, and in one of those statements, he says, blessed are the peacemakers. Beloved, we, we need to be peacemakers. Makers and, and sometimes the people in the church, we're not peacemakers, we're problem producers, right? We, 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 we don't help the situation. And, and let me tell you, being in the church for as long as I've been in the church, uh, sometimes, you know, uh, there'll be a tense situation. Maybe it's in a marriage or it's just between two people, whatever it might be. And, and sometimes the response that I get when someone has not pursued peace, but they've kind of gone on the offensive is, well, you know, I'm just being like Jesus had righteous anger, all right? Now, let me, let me just address a few things, and y'all know how it goes. By the end of the day, you're going to be upset about something that I said, so let's just get out of the way and get over it, all right? Let's pursue peace the rest of the sermon. 
So I've heard that. Now, let me say that Jesus did indeed display righteous anger. The Bible says you can be angry and not sin. So it is a reality. Let me just tell you my commentary. Many of the times in my observation, when people have been angry, it did not result in them not sinning, right? And so sometimes when things don't go our way and we want to fight for what we think is rightfully ours and then claim, well, I'm just being like Jesus, we just need to understand that even when Jesus was angry, he was still pursuing peace. And also just for the record, if you really search the gospels, uh, I, I did some research. I found five instances They may not directly say it, but I found five instances where I think we could say Jesus was angry. And so first off, in the entire Gospels, we see five. Um, Some of us will get angry five times today, right? Uh, And so let's just acknowledge that. Uh, And then let's, let's acknowledge why he was angry. So let me just run through these. The most popular one that we know of uh, is when he goes into the temple and, you know, they've turned it into a stripes, right? They're like, hey, cute taco, who wants one? Hold the cheese, you know. Um, if you're watching online, you're not from the Valley. That's not going to work. But anyways, they're selling stuff. And he says, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. The text doesn't actually say he was angry, but anytime you flip over a table, you're probably not pleased with the situation, right? So he was angry at what was taking place. Let me tell you, we can get angry when people want to pervert the, 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 the act of worship and the gathering of the saints in such a way that they build themselves up and defame God. If you don't believe it happens, just turn on some religious news channel and look for a dude trying to buy a jet, right? I mean, it happens. So he got upset about that. Mark chapter three, verse five. By the way, you can find that story of turning the tables over in Mark 11. Mark three, five. There's a man with a withered hand. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, they kind of set this thing up where Jesus and the guy with the withered hand are in the same space. They want to see what Jesus is going to do because it's the Sabbath day. And and if Jesus is going to heal this guy, then he's working on the Sabbath and that's a no-no, right? Well, Jesus gets into a dialogue with these Pharisees. He says, is it wrong to do good even on the Sabbath or is it evil not to do the good you can do? And of course, they can't answer him. And the, the text says that, 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 that in the language that he was kind of indignant towards their response. Well, wh- why was he upset? Because their response showed a callousness to human need over religious ritual. Jesus was upset because religious ritual was being put over basic human needs. So there's a situation. There's another story where uh, there's a a leper, a guy with leprosy, and he comes running to Jesus. And he says, teacher, teacher, if you are willing, would you heal me? And the text says, when we read in our Bible, that and he, he had compassion, and he said, I am willing. Now, listen to me. When the text says he had compassion, that's 100% accurate. But the way that it reads, you, you, could, you could translate it to say that, that he was indignant and had compassion. Now, indignant's kind of this you know, fancy word. It means he was upset. So the question would be, why is he upset at the guy with leprosy wanting him to heal him? Was he like, bro, it's after five. I don't heal after five. I mean, why would Jesus be angry at at the leper when he's angry at leprosy? Like, that's not part of the plan. 
It's an example of the brokenness that sin has ravaged, right? The text tells us in John 11 that when he gets to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, who has died, right? Every kid's favorite memory verse, Jesus wept, right? That's another place where really the weight of the text and what's being said is he's moved with emotion, but that's also a place where it could be translated that Jesus was indignant at what he found. Was he mad at Lazarus? Bro, you couldn't wait just like another minute before you died? I gotta raise you from the dead. No, he's angry at death. He hates death. He, 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 death is a reality of the, 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 the brokenness of God's design that is being restored in Jesus. Another story, little children come to Jesus, right? And he's ministering to the kids. They're like, no, no, the teacher doesn't have time for the kids. And he says, with indignation, let them come to me. And so five instances and so what I got to ask myself is how often when I want to feel like I'm righteously angry, is it because human ritual is being promoted over human need? Is it maybe be, because of the brokenness of this world? Is it because the little ones aren't being allowed to receive the word? Many times for me, if I'm honest, it's none of those things. It's none of those reasons that, that, that anger is stirring up inside of me. And it's none of those reasons that causes me not to pursue peace. And so I want to talk about how do we fight for peace in divided times? Because, listen, even, even when the situation calls for righteous anger, the pursuit of peace is never to be abandoned. If you study the Gospels, what you see in Jesus' heart is he always longed for the Pharisees, the ones he was usually upset with. He always longed that they would repent. He, he, never, he, he never confronted them with a heart that didn't want to see them respond. So here in Nehemiah chapter 5, let's, let's look at how do we fight for peace in divided times. I'm going to read the first five verses, and what I want to do, is this is not going to be in the notes, but you may want to write this down. I'm going to look at the first five verses, and I want, I want to talk about real quick what causes division, right? Because in the rest of the chapter, we're going to talk about how do we fight against it. But, but let's lay the foundation. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 1. There was a widespread outcry from the people and their wives against their Jewish countrymen. Some were saying, we, our sons, and our daughters are numerous. Let us get grain so that we can eat and live. Hit the pause button right there. Do you know one reason why division is a reality? Division is a reality when people feel that their basic needs go unmet, right? What, what does the text say? It says that there was an outcry against their fellow countrymen, and some were saying that their sons and daughters are numerous. Let us get grain so we can eat and live. They, they weren't able to get their basic needs met. Sometimes division is going to rise up when people feel the basic needs aren't being met. Verse 3, others were saying, we are mortgaging our fields, vineyards, and homes to get grain during the famine. Pause. You know why else division rises up? It rises up when we feel like we're falling behind. What does the text say? It says that they're, they're mortgaging their houses. And as we'll read a little bit further, why are they mortgaging their houses? To pay the taxes that their own people were imposing on them. They're, they're mortgaging, they're falling behind. For all the married couples in the room, let me ask you a question. When the finances have been tight and you have found yourself falling behind, was it usually connected to raised strife in the marriage as well? I remember when um, I asked my father-in-law uh, for his blessing to ask my wife to, to marry me. And so uh, we had been dating for like six months or so. I had never in my life shown up to my in-law's house when my 
girlfriend at the time was not there because I knew when she wasn't there because she was with me, right? Or I would call. I didn't just randomly show up like, hey, guys, let's hang out, right? So I show up, and I know she's not there. And um, so I, I walk in, and my father-in-law's name is Michael. I'm like, hey, Michael. Well, Christy's not here. Yeah, let's hang out. What's he doing? He's cleaning a gun. Um, I found out he was anticipating my visit, so although it's my father-in-law, it just could have been gun cleaning time. So anyways, so I, you know, proceed. I don't waste any time. I'm like, hey, I love your daughter, and I want to marry her. And uh, he gives me his blessing, and then he said, I'm going to give you uh, a piece of advice. And he said, most of the fights in marriage center around three subjects. Faith, y'all have that figured out. Sex, we're not talking about that. And money. And it's funny how that works, right? When we feel we're falling behind and so maybe finances, it may be in what, where we think we should be in life, season of life, stage of life. When we feel like we're not meeting some expectation, when we feel like we're falling behind, division rises up, conflict, right? And there's a need for peace. Let's keep reading. Verse four, still others were saying, we have borrowed money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards. You know what else causes conflict? When people feel like leaders or those that should be caring for them are insensitive, right? You ever feel like that? If you said no, then you're not watching inflation in 2022, but anyways. When people feel that leaders are insensitive, what's happening here? We're mortgaging our fields, and why are we doing that? Because we're paying taxes because our leaders don't care. Verse 5, and the most powerful reason why I think division and conflict arises. We and our children are just like our countrymen and their children. We're just like them. Yet we are subjecting our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters are already enslaved. Check this out. But we are powerless. Everybody say the word powerless. We are powerless because our fields and vineyards belong to others. You know why division and conflict rise up? They rise up when people feel powerless to do anything about the situation. And so here's the deal. We, as those that have trusted Jesus and are called to be peacemakers, listen, this works in the church and it works out of the church. We look for people that feel powerless, that feel that those that are called to care for them are insensitive. That can be leadership in, in, in government. That could be leadership in a home, in a workplace. And, and so we, we listen and we look for situations where people feel powerless, where they feel that leaders and those called to care for them are insensitive. We look for situations where people feel overextended and unable to meet their needs or where their needs aren't met. And then we rush in with peacemaking initiatives. And check this out, beloved. If we will not fight for peace in here, what makes us think we'll ever have it out there? There's a saying, and it's kind of a joke, but the truth is every joke, right, every joke has a little truth to it, and that, you know, church is the place with the best fights. You know, I, I, I grew up in church, and as I've said many times, I, I didn't give my life to Christ until I got to college. But growing up in church, by the time I was 18, I had gone through two church splits. <laughs> it's a wonder I didn't get saved before then, right? Like, we, we eat our own young in the church. I mean, when I was in fifth grade, the church that my family attended, this was in 1989. My parents had joined this church in 19, 
69, I believe. And so before I was born, born in 79. So I grew up in this small Baptist church in Alice, and I'm in fifth grade, I think. And something happens, and there's division in the church. So the pastor decides to leave the church, and a few families went with that pastor, my family being one of them. To me, I was like, it doesn't really mean anything. This church was all the way on the other side of town, and the new church was going to meet in a storefront, literally like right by my house. I'm like, shorter drive home works for me. So I would then go to this new church my parents would help start and would be there all through middle school and high school. And so even though I didn't give my life to Christ, I wasn't hostile to the faith. And I, I enjoyed going to church for the most part. And then literally weeks after I graduated high school, that church blew up on a Sunday morning. And let me just say this, if you've been around BT for a while and maybe even longer than I've been here and sometimes you wonder, hey, why don't we ever do business on Sunday? Seeing what I saw growing up, and I'm saying this is right, this is me. But I just decided that in ministry, if I was ever given the opportunity to lead a church, we would never do business on a Sunday morning. We're going to do the gospel on Sunday morning. Business can take place other times. That church had a chance to do what mattered, and they focus on what didn't. And so one Sunday morning, it just blew up. And it was a mess. And you don't have time to get into all the details. But people are calling each other names that you shouldn't use out of church. Like, oh, you shouldn't say that in church. What does that mean? You can say it out of church? I mean... Once I get in that parking lot, <laughs> I mean, but just calling each other names. My, my dad, of course, I'm very, you know, it's my, he, somebody called him Judas Iscariot. Like, I'm not saved. I'm like, I know who that dude is. And that's not like your role model. And, and things are just, it was so tense. And let me tell you, sometimes, unfortunately, in a broken world, churches, there's a vision collision and a pastor leaves or people leave and, and a church splits. It shouldn't happen, but it does. But what if when it happens, the two churches said, man, I am praying God's blessing over you while we have to leave or while you leave, we're praying God's blessing over you. But instead, we sometimes do the best at not pursuing peace. So, so how, how do we then course correct? Let's take a look. Nehemiah chapter five, verse six. After those five verses, this is Nehemiah's response, I became extremely angry. And he said, well, Chris, you said we shouldn't get angry. No, I said that we need to be careful how often we claim to be like Jesus in our anger. Didn't say it never happens. I became extremely angry when I heard their outcry and these complaints. Here's the first thing I want you to write down. How do you fight for peace in divided times? You start off by empathizing with other people's pain. What does it say? It says, I became angry. Why? When I heard their outcry. How many times in a situation do we fail to pursue peace? Because let me tell you, I'm not real interested in empathizing with your pain. I need you to empathize with mine. How many, how many struggles in marriage are, not be, are, are because the other person isn't doing what we think they should do instead of me focusing on how they feel hurt, right? The first key to fighting for peace in divided times is empathizing with other people's pain. And listen, I know in this room, there are some people that are in some, some tough situations. It may be in your home or in your workplace or with your family, and you're in a tough situation and people have done things that have wronged you and caused you pain, and they should seek to empathize, but you can't control that. You can only control you. 
And I, I struggle with this, and, I, and then when I meet with people, they say, well, it's just, you know, it's just what this other person does. And sometimes we feel like, oh, no one understands how hard it is for me to empathize with this person's pain because of what I've gone through. But listen to me, I don't say this, you know, cliche or trite. If you need an example, his name is Jesus. The cross is about Jesus empathizing with our pain, that we chose sin and separated ourselves from a holy God. And there was no way for that chasm to be closed. There was no way for that, that gap to be bridged, but that God would put on flesh himself, step out of heaven, live without sin, and in obedience, surrender himself on a cross that wasn't meant to be for him. He empathized with the pain of people that desperately needed peace. Verse 7. After seriously considering the manner, the, the matter, I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, Each of you is charging his countrymen interest. And so I called the large assembly against them. So we, we start fighting for peace by empathizing with others' pain. Second, we pause and think before we speak. I'm gonna let that one just kind of sink in for a minute. Pause and think before we speak. What is the first line of verse 7 after seriously considering the matter? We read in James chapter 1, be slow to speak and quick to listen. Being slow to speak, pausing and thinking is, is, is critical to pursuing peace. See, I have this, this ailment in me that causes this to be very difficult. And this this ailment that I struggle with. No one else in here does. You just got to give me a minute and humor me. I, I've got this condition called need to be right. It's, it's brutal. And don't laugh at a brother. I, I, mean, I know you don't know what it's like. But let me just, you know, and we joke, haha, but let me, it grieves me. It does because in my marriage or with my kids or even with friends. You say, well, these are little things. Beloved, if we don't fight for peace in little things, why do you think we would succeed in the big ones? You know what a need to be right focuses on? Quick to speak. I don't need to listen to you. You're wrong. Why, why, why are we dragging this on? Like you talking just makes it take longer. Shh, listen. I'm getting wrong. Okay, I'm being wrong, all right? And I, I, I need that sanctification in me. But, but if I want to be a peacemaker, blessed are the peacemakers. Do you, <laughs> you think Jesus was right? Yeah, but yeah, that's... Uh, I'm glad I have one person. I got some preaching to do in here. You just hang out for a little bit. Jesus was right. We were wrong. If, we're, if we want to pursue peace, we've got to... It says that Nehemiah seriously considered the matter. He processed what was going on. Verse 7 then goes on to say, he didn't, just, he didn't just think about it. I accused the nobles and officials, saying to them, each of you is charging his countrymen interest. So I called a large assembly against them. Number three, you want to fight for peace? You've got to seek or try to resolve conflict appropriately. This is a sticky one. The way the text reads, in, in my opinion, I, I think we see two things that happen. After he seriously considers the matter, it says that he accused the nobles and officials I believe that was a conversation with Nehemiah and them. The text in my reading of it 
leads me to believe that progress was not made, so then he called a large assembly. Many of us have heard the statement that when you have a problem with your brother or sister, Matthew 18, go to them in private. I think, I think the best first step is always to seek resolution in private. This is just for free. I, I, I'm a personal believer that you correct in private and you, you praise in public. Like that's, with, for, whether it's kids, I mean, if you see me kind of scold my kids in front of you, just hold me accountable. Not, kids need to be scolded, right? They do. I mean, not mine, but um, <laughs> yours do, good grief. I'm kidding. But, but when we, Matthew 18 tells us that if you have a, a, an issue with your brother or sister, go to them. And if it can't be resolved, peace still should be pursued. So bring a few witnesses with you. Strive to make it better. And so what we see with Nehemiah, I believe, is he tries to handle it appropriately. He goes to the nobles and officials, but then he gathers the assembly. Let me tell you one of the great challenges of being a pastor is that sometimes there are problems that are corporate. And a corporate problem has to be addressed corporately. Always with grace, right? But if we're going to be People who pursue peace, fight for peace in divided times. We have to be willing to seek to resolve conflict in appropriate ways. And let me tell you a great way to start. Own what you can. There are, I believe, some circumstances where the offended party really has nothing to own. It would be inaccurate to say that never happens. But we know that most of the time the statement we hear is own your 1%. Well, I would just say this. Usually if there's 1%, there's at least 10. <laughs> and so start, right? You want to be a peacemaker. I want to be a peacemaker. I, I, I want to fight for peace because, listen to me, the world is divided. If we can be people at peace in here, we're going to make a difference out there. And so I recognize what you've done to wrong me. I recognize, hey, this is not right. It's not, it's not brushing it under the rug. It's not acknowledging that it was wrong. It's acknowledging what I can control. And so I feel wronged and I want to do something about it, right? I I want to empathize with maybe what led you to do that. I want to empathize with the pain you might be feeling, the pain that, that I might have caused, owning what I can, right? And as I seek to make peace, you own what you can, but you always try to resolve conflict appropriately. We see that in verse seven. Verse eight, he calls the large assembly and then it says, and said, we have done our best to buy back our Jewish countrymen who were sold to foreigners, but now you sell your own countrymen and we have to buy them back. They remained silent and could not say a word. And then I said, what you're doing isn't right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Even I, as well as my brothers and my servants have been lending them money and grain. Please, let's stop charging this interest. Return their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses to them immediately, along with the percentage of the money, grain, new wine, and fresh oil that you have been assessing them. They responded, we will return these things and require nothing more from them. We will do as you say. So I summoned the priests and made everyone take an oath to do this. I also shook the folds of my robe and said, may God likewise shake from his house and property everyone who doesn't keep this promise. May he be shaken out and have nothing. The whole assembly said, amen, and they praised the Lord. Then the people did as they had promised. So, so we, we fight for peace. How, how do we fight for peace? We, we try to resolve conflict appropriately. We pause and think before we speak. We empathize with the pain of others. But number four is we appeal to the best in each other. 
You want to be a peacemaker? You appeal to the best in each other. You say, where do you see that? Well, listen to what's happening here. So, so he has charged them, accused them. He's called the assembly, and he says, listen, we've done our best to buy our people back, but you just put them back in slavery. Like, he, he's going hard right here, right? He's like, we, we've done our best to buy back our people, but we've got to do it again because of you. Verse 9, he says, then I said, what you're doing isn't right. Seems like he's not backing off. But then he says this line, Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God and not invite the reproach of our foreign enemies? Beloved, that is appealing to the best in them. Contextually and culturally, for Nehemiah to call the Jewish people to walk in the fear of the Lord so as not to gain the reproach of their enemies was to call them to their identity as the chosen people of God. When, whenever we have conflict with each other, the, the key is to appeal to the best in each other. You say, where are you going with this? Listen to me. If you have Jesus, that's the best you got. If you have given your life to Christ, the best in you is him. If you have not given your life to Jesus, you don't have the best yet. And so when conflict arises, and inevitably it does, we appeal to the best in each other because that's the same thing we need. We appeal to the Jesus that is inside of us. You know, every situation presents the opportunity to assume the worst if we want to. You say, well, Chris, this person over and over and over and over. And listen, you may need to change some patterns to put yourself in a position to continually be hurt by that person. But if you believe that person has given their life to Jesus, you continue to appeal to Jesus in them and believe that the working of the Spirit will do something powerful. We appeal to to the best. Part of appealing to the best in each other is also knowing who we represent. It's knowing who we represent. You know, sometimes we forget that in the conflict and arguments that we have that we represent Jesus, right? We're an ambassador. You know, I think it's interesting also that Nehemiah, he, he didn't shrink back from making the accusation. He, he, said that, he, he said what you're doing is wrong, right? He's seeking to resolve the conflict, but I think it's interesting that once he begins to appeal to the best in them, saying, hey, don't you think you should walk in the fear of God? Don't worry about me, but don't you think you should walk in the fear of God and, and not invite the reproach of our enemies? It seems that as soon as he begins to do that, things start to change. Like, you know what? You're right. You know, sometimes what people don't need is to be told yet again how bad they are, <laughs> but, but maybe there's an opportunity for change. Once that was presented, then, then they're like, we're going to give it all back. We're gonna give, and, and Nehemiah ups the ante, by the way. They're like, we'll give it all back. And then he says, hey, I'm going to shake the folds of my robe saying, like, I got nothing to do with you if you're lying to me right now. I'm going to wear a robe one day and just so I can shake it. But anyways, he says, he says, I shook the folds of my robe. And he said, may God do likewise. May you be shaken up. Basically what he's saying, listen, you're saying you're going to do this, but if you're just giving me lip service, I pray God leaves you with nothing. And what do the people say? So be it. Amen. And then they praised God because Nehemiah wasn't expecting them to always do the worst. He was, he was appealing to the best. Let me just say this before I go to the next point. Beloved, if you are always in the habit of putting people down, how do you expect to ever lift them up? If we in the church continue to excel in putting other people down, what makes us think that when the time comes, we'll be positioned to, to lift them up? Verse 14, furthermore, from the day King Artaxerxes appointed me to be their governor in the land of Judah from the 20th year until his 32nd, 
12 years, I and my associates never ate from the food allotted to the governor. The governors who preceded me had heavenly burdened the people, taking from them food and wine as well as a pound of silver. Their subordinates also oppressed the people, but because of the fear of God, I didn't do this. Instead, I devoted myself to the construction of this wall. And all my subordinates were gathered there for the work. We didn't buy any land. There were 150 Jews and officials as well as guests from the surrounding nations at my table. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some fowl were prepared for me. An abundance of all kinds of wine was provided every 10 days. But I didn't demand the food allotted to the governor because the burden on the people was so heavy. Remember me favorably, my God, for all that I have done for this people. The fifth point is this. You want to fight for peace? Do everything with humility and generosity. Nehemiah, he's been appointed the governor of this area. Now, now, we need to understand that when, when he leaves the king's court, he's not going just as some guy. He's going now as the governor of this area, and as governor, he is entitled to certain provisions. And let me just, let me just make sure I'm being clear. Sometimes, a season or station of life, you'll be entitled to certain provisions, and that's not wrong. But what we do matters. And he says, listen, I didn't take the food allotted to me. He says, I didn't, I didn't work as the foreman kind of standing out there telling the crew what to do. I got a trial and I got on the wall. And, and he says, why, why, why did he do this? It, listen, if the people were flourishing, it would have been great for him to take the governor's allotment. But the people were burdened. And so he did not want to add to their burden. So even though he rightly was entitled to certain things in humility and generosity, he forsook those things. He said, I'm not gonna do this. I'm not gonna add to the burden. Listen to me, sometimes, beloved, we will find ourselves in a situation where we may be rightly entitled to certain things. But if taking that which is rightly ours furthers the burden of those that we want to make peace with, we have to ask what's worth it. And there is no greater picture than Jesus of that. Listen to me, people in this room, people online, a lot of marriages. This sermon definitely applies in marriage. It applies in parenting. It applies if you're an employer and have employees. It applies if you're an employee and working for an employer. It applies for the church family. It applies for how we engage with the context of culture. Paul would write in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 11, Consider Jesus, who even though he was God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Like that, that, that's a mind-blowing statement. Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh, right? Second person of the Trinity. Consider Jesus, even though he is God, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So in his humanity, it says, so he took on the form of a servant. Was that? He became human. God left heaven. So he took on the form of a servant and was obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus did not deserve the cross. He did nothing to warrant the cross being his reality. It's yours and my reality. But in humility, right? In humility, Jesus doesn't have to be humble for nothing. He's Jesus. But in humility and generosity, he gave himself away. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, we read that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. Paul continues to write in verses 18 to 20 that, that we are ambassadors of reconciliation. By the way, ambassador of reconciliation, that's a fancy talk for be a peacemaker. 
be a peacemaker. This is not, not, in the, not in the notes. Let me just say this. Here in a little bit, we're going to leave here. Some of us are going to go home. Some of us are going to go out to eat. I, my, my, we always go out to eat on Sunday because I want to go home and make a mess and have to clean it up. I'm tired. Let's just go eat, right? And by the time we get out of here and wherever we get to, inevitably you run the risk of getting to that restaurant that has bad service, right? Don't ever follow me, no matter where I'm at. If I'm at HEB, don't get in the line I get in. If I go out to eat, don't go to that restaurant. Because I, I will go to HEB. This has nothing to do with anything, but I just need to lament with you for a minute. I'll go to HEB, and there will be one person in the line, and the line next to him has 18 people. I'm like, I'm getting in that one. I get behind that person, light starts flashing. I need a customer service manager, please. 24 people later, I'm still, you know, I'm like, oh. It's just, you know, hey, let's go to this restaurant. I'll call. Oh, we have no wait. I get there. Oh, there's a 30-minute wait. I just called you. How did people get here that fast? But listen to me, joking aside, whether it's the cashier at HEB, the host or hostess at the restaurant or the server, what if what that person is needing is an ambassador for Christ? A reconciler. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5 that we need to be ambassadors, reconcilers. And then he gives us the reason why in 2 Corinthians 5.21, because he made him who knew no sin. Let's just break that down real quick. He, God the Father, made him, Jesus the Son, to be sin who knew no sin. What does that mean? Jesus never experientially knew sin. He still does not experientially know sin. What do you mean, Chris? He's never sinned. Guess what? You and I, we experientially know sin. We have given into temptation, fulfilled the desires of the flesh, the, the, lustful, the, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of flesh, boastful pride of life. We have engaged in all of it. We have experienced sin, but he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to become sin who knew no sin, so that in him, Jesus, we, you and I, might become the righteousness of God. Translation, Jesus never knew sin by experience, but you better believe he knows it by consequence. He absorbed the wrath of God. We will come to know consequences of sin in this life because brokenness is running rampant for now. But if you place your faith in Jesus, you will never know the full extent of the consequence that your sin deserves because Jesus took it. And in return, we get to know what we would never know without him, the righteousness of God, of God applied to our life. That is humility and generosity a hundred times over. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, for we know that though he was rich, Jesus became poor for our sake so that in his poverty, we might become Rich, Jesus, like rich doesn't work, right? We talk, we think rich, we think of earthly riches. He is, he is the one that Colossians says, all things were created by him, through him, and for him. Rich doesn't work. It's just the best word I got, right? He, he's got everything. And he steps out of heaven and he becomes poor for you and I. So that, this is backwards, by the way, usually people got to get rich so that we can get rich off their riches, Right? We get rich off of Jesus's poverty. Though he was rich, he became poor so that through his poverty, we might become rich. And you say, well, Chris, I don't feel rich today. You, you, may, you may not have everything you want today. 
Listen, let me just make a few statements as I close out. God can and does bless people with material wealth. Material wealth is not evil or righteous, right? Love of money is evil. Money is not. God will, ch- will choose to bless people with material wealth and the hope is that in response to his generosity, they would be generous as well. They would sow into other people and sow into the kingdom of God and sow into the local church. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, Chris, I've got friends all around me that God has blessed with wealth. Why not me? Maybe you haven't proven to him that he can trust you with his stuff yet. If every time you get a little and it just kind of gets you know, consumed, then maybe he's not quite at a place where he wants to give you more. But, but material wealth and all that it can bring Dream home, guess what? It's not evil. A nice car, not evil. A, a fully funded IRA, 401k, not evil. But none of those things are the riches that Jesus provides. Because through his poverty, when we become rich, it's not those things he can bless with them. I pray, by the way, he blesses all of you that way. The more that you get blessed, the more that we can sow into the kingdom, right? But that's not the riches that we are blessed with. In the humility and generosity of Jesus, it's Revelation 20 when John would write, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the former things had passed away and the sea was no more. Verse four, and then he wipes away every tear from their eyes because sin and sickness and death and pain were no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne declare, I am making all things new. In the generosity and humility of Jesus, I will go through the brokenness of this world. I will experience division and conflict, but I can choose to pursue peace because he pursued me. And yes, there will be more difficult days in front of me. And one day I will take my last breath or Jesus will return and I'll meet him in the sky. Which, whichever comes first, all of the pain and the brokenness and the death of this world expires. It has an expiration date and he makes all things new. And that is reason enough for me to die to myself so that I can serve and love you because I don't need another example. I've got it in Jesus. So when we decide to be peacemakers, we do all things with humility and generosity. Sometimes that means I'm even gonna own the mess that I didn't make, but it's messed up your life. There may be a mess that has messed up your life and I didn't make it, but I'm gonna say I'm sorry that that's happened and I'm gonna help clean it up. One of the things try to teach our kids, right? You don't have to make the mess to clean it. We need to practice that in the church. Just because we didn't make the mess doesn't mean that we aren't the one God's called to clean it. Beloved, there is a need for the church to fight for peace because we do live in divided times. And it's not simply the trivial things of this world that are at stake. We still, if you're in this room, we still live in one of the most unreached areas of the United States. And that's got to wreck our souls. And when I think about the fact that God has pursued me and he has given me peace with him. Again, when it, when it comes to, to living at peace with you, I made this statement last week. When I, when I am mindful of the ocean of grace it took to save me, it, should compa- it shouldn't compare to the thimble of grace it might take to live in peace with you. So, so what do we do? How, how do we respond 
to all of this? What, what's the answer? Well, let me just give you a few questions to think about as a next step today. Let me just ask you this first question. You may want to write it down and think about it this week. Are you more productive in pursuing peace or sowing discord? Your words and actions, are they more productive in pursuing peace or sowing discord? The answer to that will probably be connected to this. Are you choosing humility? Are you choosing humility? Choosing generosity? Are you practicing peacemaking disciplines? You say, Chris, what are peacemaking disciplines? So glad you asked. Guess what? This is the part of the sermon where I go on repeat. You know what peacemaking disciplines are? They're the spiritual disciplines that we always talk about. You want a peacemaking discipline? Get serious about getting in the word of God. You cannot be serious about getting in the word of God and then still be someone who thrives and longs for conflict. It it just doesn't work. And by the way, you can want peace in your home, peace with your kids, peace in your workplace. You can can want peace everywhere. But if you aren't busy reading the manual on how to have it, it's not going to happen. Being in the word of God, peacemaking discipline. Spending time in prayer with God, peacemaking discipline. Let me just tell you about me, right? I'm a terrible person. You know it, right? But in my life, I am most prone to not be a peacemaker when my prayer life is low. I will be much quicker to speak and slower to listen when I'm not listening to him. Prayer is a peacemaking discipline. Community. Choosing community. You say, how is that a peacemaking discipline? You get with brothers and sisters in Christ that want to be peacemakers as well. Listen to me. If, if you come here on Sunday and you spend the rest of your time in, in environments, in spaces and places that don't promote peacemaking, if you're around people that don't value the things of God, listen to me, beloved, listen to me. We as the people of God need to choose spaces and places and faces that have the similar foundation we do. We've got to be in community, people that will hold us accountable. Steps of obedience, guess what that is? That's a peacemaking discipline. Knowing the things you should do and doing them, trusting God with your resource, right? Generosity, seeking to help those that are in need. Uh, We talk about baptism all the time, being obedient in baptism, not because it's gonna make you right with God, but because you believe Jesus has made you right with God and you're not ashamed of that, so you go public with that decision through baptism. How are you doing in these areas? Here in the room in just a moment, we're gonna close out with a time of worship. We're gonna sing about the goodness of God. By the way, it's the goodness of God that makes us at peace with him. And it might be today that there, there's some of you and you want to come forward to one of our prayer ministers and you want to share a situation. Maybe it's a conflict. You can share as little or as much as you like and receive prayer that you would be a peacemaker in that situation. Maybe there's husbands and wives and you need to come down here hand in hand and just kneel at this altar, not because the front of the room is a magic place, but because there's power and active obedience. And you wanna come kneel and pray or get prayed over that your home would be a place of peace. Maybe husbands and wives, you've got a child that's become a prodigal and you've tried everything and you need to pursue peace with that child. Maybe there are some kids in here, some students in here, and your parents haven't given their life to Jesus and it makes your home a tense place and you want to come pray for your parents. 
Maybe you want to talk about a step of obedience. Maybe you want to talk about what it means to be baptized or to belong to the church or how you can find community. If you're watching online, use the the chat feed or send us a direct message. Let us know how we can pray for you or what questions you might have. But hear me, beloved, you will never succeed at being a peacemaker until you are at peace with God. It just doesn't work that way. And sometimes in our Western way of thinking, we have friends or family members or coworkers, and and we, best we can tell, we don't believe they know Jesus, but we say, oh, he's a good old guy. It doesn't work that way. Without Jesus, there's no hope. And it's not on subject, but let me just say this. When we tend to think that our friend, family member, or coworker who we believe doesn't know Jesus is just a good old guy, it just, it just removes the urgency of our evangelism. Because, oh, they're pretty good, but then these people here, they're really messed up. Let's focus on this. The person without Jesus is a person without Jesus. And listen, in our homes, people who don't know Jesus, they can generally want to be at peace with their spouse. I'm, saying that, I'm not saying that everybody who doesn't know Jesus, that, that marriage is getting divorced for sure. I'm just saying the chances are way higher. Without Jesus, we have not received peace. So we will not pursue it. But God made a way. And my question is, have you received the peace of God in your life? You say, Chris, well, how do I do that? Well, at this church, we believe real simply what the Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you believe in your heart and confess with the mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Say, that sounds too simple. Talk to Jesus. He died on the cross. Don't, 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 don't mistake free for cheap. It's the free gift of salvation, not the cheap gift of salvation. And so if you, if you don't know where you stand with the holy God, if you don't know if you've done business with Jesus, my encouragement to you, whether you're in the room or online, is make that decision today. Receive peace with God because, hear me, and this is not some scare tactic, if you do not receive peace with God, it doesn't just affect your now, it affects your eternity because the Bible is clear, those who do not trust Jesus spend eternity apart from him. And let me just say this, by the way, that Revelation 20 passage, that's awesome. That's, that, that's why I know this isn't my home. I'm just, I'm just passing through. And I long for that day. I celebrate that day where death is no more and sin and sickness and pain have no bearing on my existence. And it is all about Jesus all the time. And it's the way that it is meant to be because he has restored and recreated all things for his glory. I look forward to celebrating that day as any believer should. But listen to me, if you're on the fence about trusting Jesus, I'm not waiting for them to experience the gift of Jesus. Brokenness is still rampant in the world, but it's continually being undone in my heart. The best part about knowing Jesus, beloved, isn't going to heaven. That is an amazing benefit. The best part of knowing Jesus is knowing Jesus. It's knowing that in the dark night of the soul, I've got a friend that sits closer than a brother. It's knowing that when, when things are falling apart, it's knowing that when division surrounds me, I've got peace with the King of Kings. And today, if you don't know if you've made that decision, I'm gonna invite you to make the decision. Doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, 
If you want to be at peace with God, I'm going to invite you to make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. I'm going to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes. If you're ready to make this decision, I'm going to invite you to say a prayer with me. Let me be clear. The prayer isn't a magic formula. Please hear me. Do not believe that mindlessly reciting a few words today is your answer. The answer is knowing that you need Jesus, knowing you need a savior, knowing that you need hope, and knowing you cannot provide it for yourself. If that's the case, this is not a magic formula. It's a confession of salvation. This is Romans 10, 9 for you, believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. So if that's you today, you wanna give your life to Jesus right where you are, in this room or online, just say this prayer with me. Dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I'm far from you. I know I'm hopeless without you. But I believe that you made a way for me to be made whole. I believe you sent your son, Jesus, to leave heaven and come to earth. And Jesus, I believe you did that. I believe you lived a life without sin. I believe you died on the cross and you paid for my sin. And I believe three days later, you rose in victory over that sin. And so today, Jesus, I'm trusting you with my life. I'm asking you to save me. Help me live for you every day that I live. And thank you for loving me first. It's in your name that I pray. Amen.